Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Welcome to Energy Enablers, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy that speaks to those on the front line of the energy transition. I'm your host, David Weston, and joining me this week is Sabine Erlinghagen, CEO of the Global Gridware Software Division at Siemens. Sabine and I discuss the growing role of software in grid and infrastructure development. We touch on the changing nature of grid operation with a greater emphasis on automation and how to achieve a more resilient grid infrastructure network as electrification continues to grow. I hope you enjoy our chat. Sabine, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers this week. To start with, I really want to discuss the Europe's electricity grids and whether they're indeed ready for a fully electrified world. What are the sort of challenges and opportunities in ensuring these grids are ready for net zero? Thank you. I mean, it's a topic that is dear and near to my heart, and I'm, I'm very happy to join you on this episode today. Um, the answer is um, is a difficult one because fully, in a fully electrified world, um, we need to increase grid capacity dramatically. We're talking about doubling the grid capacity in something like seven years and at the same time changing how the whole architecture of grids are being done from a very central paradigm uh, to an even more decentral one. Um, so the challenges are huge and uh, Together with a lot of players, uh, we need to tackle them to make them ready for really a net zero world. So what are the major challenges that we're facing in growing the grid? I mean, uh, if you just think about uh, we've been building this grid that we see today over the last 100 years and doubling its capacity means uh, building the same again in seven years. Um, and we all know space is not available, um, it, it takes long times to get permissions to build a great infrastructure or any public infrastructure. Um, so it's it's actually a, a really big challenge. And um, I guess uh, we all know that we need to go about things in a smarter way. Mm. And it's not about uh, burying more copper in the ground or having more overhead lines, um, but it really is about a smart way to tackle that challenge. Mm. And uh, the, the good answer is there are ways of, of being smarter about it, um, reducing technical losses, um, take, getting more out of the existing infrastructure, running the grids with the means of software closer to its physical limits. Mm. So there were ways of doing that, um, but it requires literally paradigm shifts uh, in our industries uh, to do that. You said, obviously, the, the grid's been developing for the last 100 years or so. It has obviously been growing in that same time why is it not now and it had, I mean, we've had blackouts of course but it's 
on the whole being quite stable uh, grid system. Why is it now that we're really struggling and really need to expand it quite so quickly compared to the last 100 years? Great question. Um, if we think about net zero, then by and large, we all agree that electrification of almost everything is the answer. So we are swift switching between fuels, if you like. So we're going away from the fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil, um, and look for electri electrifying everything. Mm. And that's heating, that's uh, driving, so mobility, and that's industrial processes. Mm. And if you add all of that energy and electrify it, it, it just uh, increases the consumption by so much. So we expect that electricity consumption worldwide goes up threefold by 2050. Wow, really interesting. Um, what sort of challenges, therefore, um, perhaps other main priorities? Uh, what changes should we see first? Is there anything we should be doing right now um, in order to sort of prepare for the next seven years of, of grid growth? I think, I mean, it, it doesn't end at seven years, but that's certainly the most crucial time uh, frame because it's it's very near term. And there's a question of how much can you do? What can you actually do in seven years in our industries? It's for the periods that we've been thinking of, uh, seven years is like a glimpse. It's it's tomorrow. Yeah. It's a very short time frame in our uh, industry. So the question is, how can we achieve that speed? And I'm very convinced that software can play a major role. If you think about, um, for instance, distribution grids, and especially the low-voltage grids, mm -hmm. we actually still manage them like we've been managing them the last 100 years. So by and large, we don't manage them at all. We just let electricity flow, and uh, we put enough spare capacity and, and buffer in the grids so that it hopefully works. Um, and uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating on, on that one. And, and people who who work very closely in control rooms and the likes, they, they know what I'm talking about. Um, mm. So if we had visibility on what's going on in those low voltage grids and with low voltage grids, what you mean is actually who has a PV plant, who is charging where, how much is that uh, kind of transformer in front of your doorstep uh, utilized or not at any given point in time, hmm. then all of a sudden you can start to manage. Um, I think the difference might be in, in the past, if you take an analogy, I was driving uh, on a road and a, a traffic jam hit me by surprise. Mm -hmm. Today I use Google Maps and I anticipate and know where the traffic jam is coming and I can manage accordingly and I can have foresight and, and, and I can find ways to circumvent it, or at least I know it can be circumvented. Mm. Um, so it's, it's those type of abilities of getting transparency and manageability mm. um, that, that I'm talking about when thinking about speed and thinking about being faster in using more of the existing grid. Uh, and so that's the sort of changes we need to know now. We need to understand how the demand is changing on the low voltage grids now. Um, what sort of uh, visibility do we have on these low and med I guess medium voltage grids as well? So very little, as I said. Mm. Um, and uh, the good news is that gives us also the potential. So uh, if we can increase that and uh, for the countries that have rolled out smart meters, mm. um, we do have a lot of data. We just don't use it for that purpose. 
Um, so it's a very, very near-term opportunity uh, to get more out of the existing infrastructure and increase the capacity without building physical. Um, sure. I mean, we also need to build physical, but that will come into play only um, years later while managing your grids every day closer to its limits, avoiding technical losses uh, can be done in a very short time frame. So think about um, utilizing your smart meter data for understanding close to real time with the help of AI um, what's going on in your grid. Um, imagine you have a full topology model of your uh, low voltage grid. And then you can start manage. You can start, okay, I have a congestion here. I can uh, use another route. You can say, um, how, uh, how can I run the grid in a different way so I reduce my technical losses and run simulations accordingly? Mm. I can say, um, oh, I can admit more renewables. I can admit more PV. I can admit more uh, EV mm. to that piece of the grid because I know there's still buffer. Um, and I would also say next thing then, I, I know that I can manage those flexibilities mm. that are coming in um, so I can still cope with the same existing infrastructure that I have. You mentioned sort of grid software and, and AI um, there. How do you see the role of grid software evolving uh, over the next sort of maybe seven to 10 years uh, to optimize grids effectively? I mean, we talk about um, grid software as in grid planning operations and maintenance. Sure. Um, and uh, we believe that uh, these three key processes need to get interlinked much better. So, and, and one key aspect is really a proper representation of your grid topology or your network model. Mm. We call that sometimes the digital twin, which mm. reaches across grid planning, grid operations, and grid maintenance. And if you get that straight, you all of a sudden solve quite a number of problems. If you use the same grid model and the same, like say, meter data for grid planning, you identify your technical losses, you reduce them, and you can uh, get more over the same line. Mm. If you um, use the same grid model for, or a, a, a proper grid model and a proper digital twin of your low voltage net network, you can actually not only plan that piece of the grid accurately based on historical data, mm. um, but you can also manage it every day to its full capacity. And you can start to dare rethink principles like N minus one, which is the, the safety principle that we have in our industry to um, make sure that even a larger failure or the largest failure can still be backed up. Mm. Moves you very nicely on to the next question as uh, as we move to a more electrified world there are concerns about grid stability and resiliency and overloading the grid especially at times of high demand or even times of um extreme weather events that we've seen at damaging grids how do we address some of these concerns and develop solutions that enhance the reliability of europe's grids mm -hmm. i think um Again, uh, software is a big part of the solution. Of course, uh, an appropriate amount of capacity um, as in physical infrastructure is as well. But mm. if I think about I want to manage critical situations and uh, enact the right things, if I want to restore quickly because on the storm or something you can uh, or a uh, wildfire, 
there's not much you can do sometimes, mm. um, then it's about, again, maximum transparency and maximum manageability of, um, of things right. and an ab uh, ability to manage. At the moment, we, we, we are passive in the sense of we let the electricity flow and we can't, uh, like in many parts of the grid, we can't do it a lot. Right. And the, the interesting piece is in the past, we've thought that what we have in the transmission grids, so the high voltage lines, those paradigms, we would just um, kind of push further down to the medium voltage grid and the low voltage grid. That means in the high voltage grids, I know precisely what's going on. I measure every point. I have instrumentation measurement and uh, control over every piece of uh, that part of the network. Now, if I put that down to the medium voltage grid already, um, it's getting more difficult sure. because I have more lines. I, I need more instrumentation. I, it becomes all very, very costly to do the same. If I go down even further to the low voltage grid, that paradigm completely shifts. You talk to some of uh, Europe's largest grid operators, they told me we are expecting 20-fold the data to go from medium to low voltage grid. Wow. And simply the way we plan or we operate medium voltage grids already is, is a very challenging task. Mm -hmm. But transporting that to the low voltage grid with 20 times more data um, those mechanisms just break down. So the question is, how can we use the likes of AI, the likes of smarter ways of um, creating, let's say, virtual measure measurement points, so not measuring, but uh, calculating, mm. um, and still get enough accuracy to be able to take decisions mm. that will be much faster and um, also much cheaper. Because if I would roll out instrumentation to every piece of uh, the network, I mean, it would take another 100 years. And uh, that's just the time that we don't have. Do we need to reconsider how grids operate? Um, as in, you know, the way we've been operating over, over the last maybe 30, 40, 50 years, perhaps. Does that need to change entirely now? Is it still going to be centralized control rooms? Um running things and deciding when and where to ramp up generators or ramp down, uh, depending on, on the needs of the grid? Or is there going to be a lot more uh, AI involved in doing in those decision makings as well, but also um, a lot more collaboration between grid operators? Um, I mean, A, in Europe, luckily, especially between the TSOs, we have great collaboration. Okay. And also the DSOs, I mean, talk uh, significantly and, and learn from each other. And, and there's like we... we we have great sessions with uh, many of them in the rooms and there are the associations and uh, mm. uh, th that works really well. If I compare that, especially to the U S uh, <laughs> let's <laughs> say um, the, y your question is, was whether we um, operate grids differently. And mm. our answer is yes, absolutely. Um, okay. And the analogy that I like to use is, is cars. I mean, if you, use like if you buy a car these days um the type of assistant systems that you have um leading to a future of potentially autonomous uh, cars we think about like operating grids in the same way we believe with the complexity of a decentral system that um it's not 
the operator staring at a screen, interpreting what uh, he or she sees, and then um, knowing by a checklist what's the next next action and what are what are the options. But rather, much like we know it in um, like our private lives, you have an assistant who tells you, "Oh, there's a situation that I'm detecting here." Um, these are the proposed uh, switching options. Um, we would rank them in such a way that is our proposal for the next best action. Um, so it's rather the system that operates the net, uh, the grid, mm-hmm. who asks the operator when they, the system needs the operator, as opposed to to the other way around around. the operator operates the grid and um uh, and tells the system what to do so it it literally is that paradigm shift and uh, we believe that that this is the only way to cope because if you i don't know whether you've been in such a control room recently the amount of screens and the amount of views that uh, those operators need to deal with um, they operate under stress uh, and mm. they are responsible for all of our well-being, right? It's it's a very, very demanding job. Um, and we ask them to to switch between screens to have, I think they have 14 screens sometimes in front of them and wow. need to interpret and make sense of, of that. And only people with a long, long experience can do that. So um, getting them the appropriate means of, again, like like in modern cars, uh, helping them to cope in traffic jams, helping them mm-hmm. to keep the distance, helping them to keep the line, uh, keep the speed limits and, and whatnot. Um, it's, uh, that's the future. Hi, everyone. Me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Oh, well, speaking of the the collaboration between the different distribution and, and transmission operators, interoperability and standardization are essential for grid infrastructure to function cohesively across borders. We've seen, um, especially in the last sort of two years, um, Ukraine and some other um, border nations joining the uh, EU grid. How do you envision fostering collaboration among European countries and, and beyond, even uh, looking across to maybe Africa uh, and into Asia, uh, to ensure seamless integration of uh, electricity grids? Is there need to be a higher level of standardization and even within Europe, I guess, as well, people plugging in heat pumps and, and um, EV chargers and things like that, would a greater level of standardization help with those the integration of those assets as well? Mm-hmm. Um, you're touching upon a very important point. I mean, I would say that when it comes to transmission grids in Europe, we are actually really good already. So um, that's something every time I talk to TSOs uh, around uh, Europe, um, it's very impressive of how well um, uh, they align. And also, if you go into those specific control rooms, the visibility that each individual um, operator has across the neighboring countries, what's going on there, it's real-time information. Right. It's um, really um, like very professional exchange um, 
not only on a theoretical level um, and on the planning level, like mid and long term, but really in the operation room every minute, uh, you know, when if, whether there's a critical uh, situation left and right. You help out each other um, when you you need uh, in order to create that grid stability. So on the transmission side, I would argue the job has become challenging. Um, but in terms of coordination at the moment, I, I'm I'm seeing uh, that we live up to it. I mean, yes, you can always improve. You can always uh, do better. Um, but uh, the collaboration is 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 really really uh, well done, and also the uh, European institutions like NSOE and and so forth are are really helpful there. Great. And they've propagated also, and and we're a big supporter of that, the so-called SIM standard, which is a standard for um, describing a grid model for creating a digital twin. Um, and that's a standard that um, has done a lot of good and has helped uh, a ton in um, both internally in any TSO as well as uh, with the exchange toward between uh, TSOs. When you then get into distribution grids and um, also when you get to the edges of the grid, what you described um, on connecting solar, connecting um, PV, being faster in admitting I think there we need more work. Um, the SIM standard is already kind of being transported down there. Um, that's helpful, and and we we are supporting that because ultimately you need to exchange also between the transmission and the distribution grid, um, and there the the SIM standard also helps uh, a ton. Um, but one of the bigger untapped challenges is and. Uh, I hope we uh, you see us uh, solving that as well. Is, is is this topic of how can we work on connection requests really fast? So sure. how can uh, you agree to or calculate and agree in a fast way to take on board a new generation or um, any flexible assets like um, like EV charging? Mm. Um, and then how can you not only accept those assets in the grid? but find a way to tap into the flexibility that they also offer sure. and find a way to make that a positive experience uh, for for the asset owners uh, in the sense of I'm not enforced to do something, but I'm incentivized to do something mm. and to participate and benefit from providing uh, flexibility. And there the U.S. is a, is a pretty cool example. Okay. Um, who is a little bit more advanced uh, in those things. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. And yeah, US, for all its faults on its grids, I guess it does have some interesting ideas on on uh, standardization and um, incentives. With the rise of digitalization and then the level of data that is um, coming as a result of that, cybersecurity is becoming an increasingly important aspect um, when managing complex grids. What measures are being taken to safeguard Europe's electricity grids against cyber threats or cyber attacks or cyber breakdowns or things like that? What you're touching upon is obviously very, very, very important. Um, and um, it's part of critical infrastructure. And I think by and large, critical infrastructure is is under scrutiny, let's uh, call it that way. And uh, what is very important here is a very, very close collaboration between both technology vendors, so someone like us, mm. right? Um, 
as well as uh, the actual grid operator. Um, and then policymakers, of course, who um, give the frame condition of what good should look like. Um, so we can all standardize on that and can all agree on um, how we go about a, so, such protection systems. Mm. Um, but then it's designing and deploying uh, software and technology in a, in a way that um, the, the protection concepts are intact. Mm. Um, and then what you see increasingly is, um, or uh, what almost becomes a standard, is so-called uh, cyber operation center socks, um, which we know from IT infrastructure. So we know that from um, protecting a data center. So you con continuously monitoring whether you see attackers, you see un un like unnormal behavior and so forth. And uh, w what is happening is that this is being deployed also to the so-called OT part. So to the critical infrastructure and to the operations technology. So not only the IT side, but the OT side. Um, and uh, you, you see setups of monitoring any unusual behavior uh, and uh, get an ability to find uh, response plans to that in the live operations. So one is the set, the planning, the conceptualizing, then the proper implementation, and then the monitoring of the ongoing um, thing. And that's very different than in the past, because in the past, I think the idea was to have demilitarized zones to protect things from a server in a cellar that can't be accessed uh, by physical means. And uh, where I think that paradigm also comes to an end a little bit. Absolutely. Sabine, thank you so much. Just before we go, um, I know we've talked about your views on, on the sort of growth of grids and, and infrastructure um, over the next few years. And I know Siemens has been speaking to the rest of the industry uh, about this. Could you tell me a little bit more about that project, the uh, infrastructure report? Ah, the infrastructure, yes, yes. And it's uh, it's actually a report that um, is uh, is independently written and where we could uh, take part of. Right. Um, it's, it's basically a... Um, I was uh, like also contributing to that one. It's a very interesting report which sheds light on the broader picture of um, uh, of Europeans, uh, Europe's in infrastructure by and large, right. and not only the grid infrastructure but all parts of our critical infrastructure. Um, and I think there's a hundred and something people interviewed experts. Uh, to really get that into a holistic picture because grids are of course one part of our critical infrastructure but there's uh, so much other and uh, so many others mm. and um, I think by and large what you see is a view that my tagline would be think smart first right. so think think software first in um, German uh, like there's a German saying which uh, plays around the word copper, which is like take the, your your hat, uh, f like think smart first before you deploy copper in the ground. Right. Uh, so um, I think that's an, an interest interesting re report to read, which even broadens it mm. up beyond the pure energy and grid infrastructure. Um, and I was uh, happily contributing to this one. And uh, for anybody who's interested, uh, it's on our website, um, on, on the Siemens website. Great. Um, but uh, can also be accessed elsewhere. Sabine, so, so what is your background, just quickly before we uh, end today? 
How did you get into grid software and uh, working in the energy sector? I have that fascination for, for infrastructure and I'm fascinated by this idea of there's such a large network. I think it's the largest um, human-made uh, infrastructure uh, that exists and that it's silently just working in the background mm. and powering all of our lives. I mean, you're listening to this podcast thanks to the fact that your mobile phone is charged or <laughs> whatever device you're mm. you're on, um, and it's it's just happening. And it, it's something that I find extremely fascinating. And at the same time, I'm fascinated by the power of software and by the ability to disrupt to um, really make step changes. I, the very early part of my career, I was working in telecommunications right. and, um, in the kind of old world of telecommunication fixed lines and, um, like mobile phones have barely been invented. Right. Um, that, like before the smartphone was there, um, and, the speed with which industries can get disrupted and the radicality with which you need to challenge the thinking um, is something that stuck with me uh, all my career. So um, with that kind of upbringing of how fast it can go from being proud of being the only one who can do something to, oops, I'm obsolescent. Uh, uh, that was a matter of very, very few years. Um, and uh, since then, I've been like doing what what fascinates me is is being in the energy space uh, for by now oh fifteen years or so, wow. um, and um, always in software because I, I think that software is the place that has the potential to disrupt uh, the most and uh, right. can help us pave the way uh, for a net zero future on top. So it's uh, the best place to be, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting. We've had a couple of guests on uh, on, on energy enablers that uh, have come from the telecommunications uh, sector before uh, before joining the energy sector. Um, so you've said you, you've always worked in the, in the software. How can you maybe give our listeners a, a bit of a, a glimpse on how much that's changed, with specifically within the energy sector, how software has changed uh, and grown within the energy space? Obviously, back 15 years ago, it was very much a hardware-based business. I mean, there's software has always been around. Sure, you've always absolutely. used yeah. uh, software for simulating mm. uh, grid planning. You've always used software for your metadata um, and so forth. And I think what if you look at other industries, um, what you see is that by and large, um, we've always uh, disruptions came about and and things got better <laughs> and and more nimble, and we could uh, use the full power of software when we really were relying on standard software in the sense of productized things as opposed to um, solution for one customer, solution for the next customer, right. solution for somebody else. Um, and what we see these days, especially when it's coming to running grids, that realization is uh, is by now, I think, arrived in 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 almost all parts of uh, our grid industry or grid, uh, in, in grid operators mm. that you cannot like it's not possible to 
use the power of software, the scale of software, the means of, of the cloud, if everybody just wants it their way and if software needs to adapt to everybody's individual processes. But I think what in software, in all industries we've learned is you better adapt your processes to the software. Um, and especially if the software is carefully designed to encapsulate and uh, display the best practices of how such a process would be run. So, that, and I think that's, uh, that, that's a very interesting time, which um, allows us uh, to go to that next step that I was uh, uh, sketching before of getting to autonomous grids. Um, because only if we rely on standard software, only if we rely on really modular software, on open uh, software, on um, that that works with surrounding systems, can we get to um, that future that that we need, which is uh, a path to autonomous grids or autonomous grid management. To sure. Do you have any uh, advice perhaps for the next generation that are about to enter the uh, energy industry today, specifically within software? I guess this new generation are going to be really quite creative with how software can be applied. I mean, first of all, it's the best place to be. Uh, to <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to um, really create a direct impact on making the energy transition work and enabling us to get to net zero, then a functioning electricity system is the base condition. If we don't get a functioning uh, electricity system and functioning electric electricity grids that can cope with a, the tripling of electricity uh, usage, mm. as well as with uh, the renewables, um, we won't get there. So it's a very, very meaningful uh, work. Uh, so that, that, that's the first uh, thing I would say. And the, the second one is, hey, there's plenty of room to really shape that industry at this yeah. uh, moment of time and to do things differently and to help get to better solutions. And um, if, if we have people uh, joining us, I mean, you can tell how individuals can make a very, very big difference. And that's extremely rewarding. Absolutely. Uh, Sabine, thank you so much. My final question, uh, which I ask all of our guests is, um, will the energy transition succeed? We have to. By 2050? I'm an optimist. I will fight <laughs> until the very last minute to make that happen. Absolutely. Perfect. Sabine, thank you so much for joining us on Air Energy Enablers today. Thank you. My thanks again to Sabine for joining us on Energy Enablers. If you enjoyed our conversation and want to hear more, go to www.foresightdk.com where you can find all of our podcasts and in-depth journalism on the energy transition. We'll be back again soon with another Energy Enabler. Thanks for listening.